This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Great Lakes Kids Apparel. That's right. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes for your little one to enjoy. Plus, Great Lakes Kids Apparel is a mom-owned business, so you know your kids will love these clothes. And Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers fast, free shipping on orders over $50, not to mention amazing customer service. So head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description and use promo code LOCKS to get 20% off your first order today. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to another episode of Check the Locks podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. And I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Olivia, before we get into it, as always, it's wonderful to see you. How are you? How has your week been? My week's been really good. I've been just working, working and working and working. But I'm excited to be here with you tonight. How are you? I haven't really caught up with you in a few days. I'm doing good. Just working. The power went out at our house today, so I was scared that we weren't going to be able to record these episodes, but everything came back just in time. That would have been truly terrifying. It would have been truly terrifying. (laughs) I'm funny tonight. You're welcome. (laughs) I love it. Other than that, I've also been a little bit jealous because I know you're leaving for Mexico on Saturday. So are you excited for your trip? Oh, yes. I'm very excited. I feel like all I've done and that's all people tell me is like, you've been on more trips this summer. And I'm like, honestly, all my trips are just back to back. And then I have literally nothing planned until probably next summer. Besides coming to you in December. Yes, we are going to have a heck of a time in December. We're going to hang out. It's going to be awesome. Do some episodes. And I'm excited because, you know, I know you've probably got a lot to do as far as packing for your trip and stuff like that. So thank you for sacrificing the time to come do this podcast and put a couple episodes out. It's it's always so much fun whenever I get to hang out with you, even if it's, you know, in Zoom. So really excited about this week's episode. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to hear what you got in store for us. 
So if you listen to last week's episode, you may remember that this week we are going back into time. I am talking curly mustaches. I'm talking boulder hats. I'm talking vests with a little pocket watch. This week we are going back to the early 1900s to discuss the missing children of the Tennessee Children's Home Society. And Olivia, I have to tell you before we jumped in, I thought this was just kind of a straight up case until I got into the details. It messed with my head going through the case. So I'm excited to present it to you. I'm excited to present it to the listeners and kind of see what the reaction is or if you feel the same way. I have to say that I love when I get text messages from you when you're like, I finished my notes. It's taken me all day or eight hours or whatever. And I believe this one took you quite some time as well, huh? Yeah, this one I started when I got off work about four and I went till about 10 o'clock and then I wrapped it up last night. Uh, It was up till about 1030. So but once I get into it, I was talking with Matt Halliday, our wonderful producer, and just spitballing ideas. And I was like, I don't know. I really like researching the cases because it makes me feel more connected to it when I present it. So I get in the zone. And I'm like, I want to know all the details. When I break this down for Olivia and for our listeners, I want to make sure that you know I'm invested in it and passionate in it. So I definitely got that feeling going through this case. And like I said, I really hope you feel the same way that I felt about it when I was researching. And I am, again, really excited to hear our listeners feedback on it. Yeah, but why don't we just jump right in? I love it. Our story begins in Memphis, Tennessee, and the Tennessee Children's Home Society is filled with the sounds of babies and small children. Running the home is the woman who had come to be known by some as the mother of modern adoption, 49-year-old Georgia Tan. Now, it's important to remember that prior to the early 1920s, adoption was very uncommon. In her work at the Tennessee Children's Home Society, Georgia Tan saw herself as type of a savior for neglected and unwanted children. To Georgia, she was giving these children a new lease on life by helping them find a new home and appearing to bring happiness to couples who could not conceive. At this point in time, the Tennessee Children's Home Society was getting adoption requests from couples in every state in the country, including Canada and England. Some of the biggest stars of the time, including Joan Crawford and Lana Turner, adopted children from the orphanage. Georgia Tan's work was praised by politicians, governors, and even presidents. In fact, she was so highly respected that she was invited to President Truman's inaugural and consulted with Eleanor Roosevelt on child welfare. In many people's eyes, Georgia Tan was in fact a modern-day saint. But Tan kept a secret that was more sinister than most could imagine. Okay, let me just start right here. And this intro is amazing. I feel like I'm truly like listening to a wild like murder novel. I'm excited to see who Georgia Tan really is. Well, let's dive into that. And I'm I'm glad that you are intrigued so early because I definitely was as well. And so, again, I'm just really excited to see how you feel as we go through the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, you did a lot of name dropping of some celebrities and go into the uh President Truman's inauguration and and casually talking about child welfare with Eleanor Roosevelt. Like, okay, she's kind of a big deal, this Georgia Tan. Well, she was actually born Beulah George, Georgia Tan in 1891 in Philadelphia. Tan's father was a prominent judge and Georgia had hoped to follow in his footsteps and practice law. Now, at the time, women practicing law was not very common In fact, the first woman to be appointed to a federal court was Genevieve Klein in 1928. Because of this, Tan's father would not allow her to study law, and Georgia instead pursued a career in social work. 
At the time, social work was one of the few acceptable careers for a woman from a wealthy family to pursue. Georgia was originally hired in Mississippi, but was soon fired for removing children from impoverished homes for no justifiable reason. After her time in Mississippi, Georgia made her way to Texas. Now, while in the Lone Star State, Georgia adopted her first daughter, June, in 1922. In 1943, Tan adopted Anne Atwood Hollinsworth. Now, it's believed that Hollinsworth was actually Georgia's longtime same-sex partner. At the time, it was common for same-sex partners to use adoption as a way to transfer property or inheritance. So you couldn't say, I want to marry this person or I want to share my life with this person or I want them to have some legal claim to my estate. But if I'm adopting an 18, 19, 20-year-old, why they may be my you know, same-sex partner, now we're, quote, family, and you have a right to anything that I have. That's really cool. That's interesting. It's clever in a way. I'd be interested to know how old Anne actually was when Georgia adopted her, like what their age difference was. Yeah, we might have to follow up with that one because I didn't have it in my research, but I was kind of thinking the same thing where I was like, how old was she when that adoption went through? Because you read adoption, and I think the way that we know it, your mind just goes to like adult, small child. But I'm pretty sure that you can adopt somebody at like any age, (laughs) which is kind of crazy. Yeah, that's interesting. In 1922, when Georgia completed her time in Texas, she packed up and moved to Memphis, Tennessee. Tan's father used his high-power connections to gain Georgia the position of executive secretary for the Memphis branch of the Tennessee Children's Home Society. By 1929, Tan had executed a takeover and awarded herself the role of executive director. But for more than 20 years, Georgia Tan stole over 5,000 children from the streets, hospitals, and low-income communities. And the Tennessee Children's Home Society was nothing more than a house of horror. That is insane. That is so crazy. Yeah, and as we get a little bit further into it, I think that sentiment is going to ring out. Because on the surface, like you said, I'm adopting to celebrities. I'm big in Hollywood. I'm meeting with presidents. But where she's getting these children is an absolute nightmare scenario. During her time at the Tennessee Children's Home Society, Georgia Tan would kidnap, abuse, and eventually sell off children. Tan would drive through impoverished Tennessee shanty towns in a black luxury car. When a child caught her eye, she would offer them a ride in her fancy vehicle. But once the children climbed inside, they would never see their families again. At this time in history, there was very little regulation around adoption, and Tan definitely used this to her advantage. According to reports filed after the orphanage's closing, many children under Tan's care died. Now, in the 1900s and 1910s, formalized adoptions were very rare. But in the 1920s, people began looking at adoption as a way to improve society. One ad that was run by the National Home Finding Society stated that adoptions would reduce divorces, banditry, murder, control births, fill all the churches and do real missionary work at home and abroad, exchanging immigrants for Americans and stopping some of the road leading to war. That's a very um, bold statement. 100%. I was reading (laughs) this and I was like, it is very, quote, of the time. Right. 100%. Yeah. I'm like, that's a very bold statement. I would never fly in this day and age. No. Yeah. I mean, at least you would hope not. 
Now, Olivia, it is also important to remember that at the time, the theory of eugenics was still very popular. I'm going to um, plead the fifth here, I think, if that's the right term, and say, I don't know what eugenics are. Yeah, and that's a great question, Olivia. You know, I knew about it broadly, but I definitely wanted to dig in a little bit deeper to make sure that I understood it in the context of this case. So eugenics is essentially a theory where people would attempt to alter human gene pools by excluding people in groups that would be judged to be inferior or promoting those judged to be superior. Now, some of the groups that may be, quote, deemed inferior would be people with mental or physical disabilities, people who scored in the low ranges on different IQ tests, criminals, deviants, and members of disfavored minority groups. So a lot of people may have heard this term in association with Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, but essentially it kind of ties into can we use genetics to make a superior human being, which is crazy on so many levels. And that the fact that they're like talking about this back in the early 1900s. Well, yeah, I mean, you got to think World War II was just around the corner. Mm -hmm. You know, it's again, just very much of the time, you know, and I think it kind of reflects on how backwards parts of society were you know, even in 1900. Right, yeah. So when it came to adoption, people just didn't want a baby. They wanted the best baby. And a campaign to explain why adoption was superior was launched. Now, around this time, baby formula also became very popular. And because of this, women who had trouble nursing could feed their babies for an affordable cost. Now, this drew busy and successful women to the possibility of adopting. Because before this, if you wanted to have a career or if you were busy, you had a child, you had to stay home. The only option was to nurse that child or I'm sure to have a wet nurse or something of that nature, which I'm sure even in the early 1900s wasn't, you know, quote, cheap. So this opened up a lot of doors to a lot of different people being able to possibly be parents. But a scheme of this size would take more than just Georgia Tan to pull off. This is starting to sound like the the Texas candy man where Dean Coral recruited the two guys to help him lure in people and do the dirty work. I was thinking the same thing until we start looking at who Georgia Tan was able to recruit. And I think it's going to blow your mind. It's going to turn into like a Jeffrey Epstein where everybody was on the airplanes. Georgia Epstein. Right. (laughs) Now stealing children for adoption was definitely not a side hustle for Georgia. In the over 20 years that she ran the Children's Home Society, it's believed that she made over $1 million from stealing and selling children. Now, just for an example, to adjust that for inflation, $1 million in 1920 is worth about $14,815,550 in 2022. That's a ton of money. A million dollars in 1920 is a ton of money. She was balling out of control in 1920. Like that is so much money. I'm telling you, Jeffrey Epstein, that's where we're going. Now, to continue her child trafficking ring, Tan would need connections, but she needed connections with power. She soon linked up with E.H. Boss Crump, who was a major player in Tennessee politics. Crump would offer protection to Georgia in exchange for a cut of the profits. Tan also paid social workers, police officers, doctors, and lawyers. Some would steal children from preschools, churches, and playgrounds for Tan. They would prey upon low-income children and families who would not have the financial means to try and stop Tan. Many involved were in positions of power. Now, it's important to remember, 
these people were looked at as authority figures. So if a police officer approached a child and said, you need to come with me, many times that child would go willingly. No yeah. questions asked. This police officer said, hey, I've got to go with them. In 1920, these higher power people, like you were saying, you as a child are taught to respect these people. And so I can see where it's like, oh, you're at a playground. The cop comes up to you or you're um, at the doctor's office or, you know, you know that the neighbor doctor is a good person and they're kidnapping you and you trust them because you're taught that way back in the day. Yeah. I mean, even now, like my daughter is like, daddy, don't run the red light because the police officer will arrest you. Like if a police officer came up to my daughter and was like, come with me, she'd be like, okay, like I know you're the police. I'm supposed to do what you, what you say. Like she grasped the concept even at that age. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's, it's completely understandable why these kids would go and not have any questions about it. Exactly. In some cases, Tan would offer to help with medical needs. Alma Simple was a single mother who could not afford medical care for her 10-month-old daughter. There was Georgia Tan at the door. With her round glasses and short gray hair, Tan explained to Alma that because she was the director of an orphanage, she could get her daughter into a clinic at no cost. But if the girl's mother came, there would be a bill. Georgia Tan took Alma Simple's 10-month-old daughter. Two days later, Alma was told her daughter had died, when in reality, she had been flown to Ohio for adoption. They would not be reunited for another 45 years. That's absurd. That is just totally absurd. This woman is telling this poor mother, I'm going to help your 10-month-old baby. One, I'd question a lot of things if the lady was telling me I couldn't bring, I couldn't go with my child. But she's telling her, oh, I can get her all this help. And then she tells her that she died two days later, but yet she's being adopted off in Ohio. Right. I think a lot of it is her image. She was known as this matronly, runs this orphanage, takes care of these children. And not a lot of people outside of the people in her network knew what she was actually doing. Yeah. She's almost like the Mother Teresa of Tennessee. Well, to me, it was like, imagine like Oprah showed up. You know, Oprah is like, I can take your baby and get free medical care. And then you find out that Oprah got all of her money from selling babies. You yeah, exactly. I mean? I'm saying like the, the community sees her as the Mother Teresa type is what I should say. And then, you know, she's turning into this terrible human. Yeah, I mean, I would almost argue that she was a terrible human who just learned how to game the system. system. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now, additionally, Tan also had a network of spotters. They would look for children playing alone on riverbanks, in neighborhoods, or walking home from school or church. Those spotters would then alert Georgia, and she would approach them in her shiny black car to offer them a ride. For some of these children, especially in the shanty towns, this was the first time that they had ever seen a car. Georgia Tan also had judges in her pocket, one of which was Judge Camille Kelly, who presided over the juvenile court in Shelby County, Tennessee, for 30 years. In a 1992 interview with 60 Minutes, investigator Robert Taylor shared that Tan had an insider in the welfare office. When someone came in for assistance, the plant would get their name and contact Camille Kelly. Georgia Tan would also create fictional backgrounds for the children that she stole. These stories were added to the children's file to make them more, quote, marketable. Files would indicate that children came from good homes with attractive single mothers and fathers were described as intelligent. Tan would often claim that they were in med school. Additionally, Tan did not discriminate in her scheme. 
At the time, it was hard for Jewish families to adopt as agencies would not work with them. But with just a few changes to the file, Tan could turn a Southern Baptist child into a baby from a good Jewish home. One victim grew up believing that she was Jewish and even attended Hebrew school. This victim later found out that she was in fact not Jewish, and as an adult, she has no idea where she really comes from. So Olivia, to me, that was kind of crazy that this woman could just go into these files and basically write any story for these children. And make them be whoever the parents wanted them to be. Yeah, and it's literally like putting merchandise on a shelf. It is like looking at these children as if, you know, they're a sweater or a pair of boots or a toy. It's what do I want to market this as? Put it on the shelf and I'm just going to start making money. You know, it's it's very dehumanizing. And my question is, is how is she getting all these high-powered people involved in this? Their morals have been thrown out the window. You have this judge who is over the juvenile court for 30 years, not just like two years, 30 years, very involved in the system, who's now involved in this. Like, I just don't understand where the moral compass goes in all of these people who are involved. To me, I think it just says a lot about the power of money and what people are willing to do for money, you mm-hmm. know, because these people were getting paid. And for the time, they were getting paid an absurd amount of money. You know what I mean? Like, you could live pretty fat off of what you were getting as a cutback. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. But it's just sad because, again, these are people that you're supposed to trust and expect to do the right thing and have faith in the institutions that they represent, you know. Now, if biological or adopted parents began digging too deep for comfort, Tan would threaten to have them arrested. Georgia was also known for, quote, repossessing children when adopted parents couldn't make payments. Can I just say you can't repo children? Yeah, it's not like a 2019 (laughs) Ultima, you know? But she was the queen of the F you pay me. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you want this baby? Pay me. And if you don't pay me, I'll take this baby back. And she had enough money to hire lawyers and things like that. That's, that's, uh, That's absurd. Yeah. And while many people were interested in babies, Tan had no issue kidnapping older children to meet the demands of her clients. Older victims of Tans were used as free labor in the home. While waiting to be adopted, older children would be in charge of changing diapers and taking care of the babies. Tan and doctors would target homes for unwed mothers, welfare hospitals, and prisons. A doctor in Tan's pocket would tell a mother that their baby had died during childbirth and had been buried at no cost to them. You can't do that. Apparently you can. This case is killing me. Because this lady did it a lot. Who are these physicians? The oath is first, do no harm. It sounds like the oath was cash rules everything around me, cream, (laughs) get the money, dollar dollar bills, y'all. Right. (laughs) Now, Gene Tapia, who was one of the first NASCAR drivers, he drove from 1951 to 1953, had his son abducted by Georgia Tan. His son, Robert, was stolen moments after his birth while Tapia was away fighting in World War II. It would take Robert and his wife 47 years to find him. Professional wrestler Ric Flair was also adopted from the orphanage as a child. Flair doesn't know if he was kidnapped or abandoned. In fact, he doesn't know his real name. Now, some mothers were coerced while still under sedation from labor. In 1950, Robert Taylor, he's the investigator that we had mentioned earlier from the 60 Minutes segment, he spent over a year compiling a 240-page report for the governor at the time. 
Now, at the time the report was written, Tennessee law required children to be adopted in the state for a fee of $7. That equates to about $86 in 2022. Tan moved the children that she kidnapped at $1,000 per head, or about $12,295 today. Georgia would conduct private adoptions and pocket up to 90% of the fee. She would gouge prospective parents on travel costs, home visits, and attorney fees. The report also described how children would be transported from the home society in the middle of the night to avoid detection. This prevented authorities who weren't in Georgia's pocket from asking questions. Tan's nurses would make regular trips to New York and California, though again, she also did ship to Great Britain and Canada. And just that idea, right, that she would ship. You know, it's like Amazon. It's that like two day. It's baby prime. Right. It's insane. In the same investigation into the Children's Home Society, Taylor found that on many occasions, babies would only be a few hours old and placed in nursing homes in the Memphis area with no medical care. Children placed in the Children's Home Society itself were not properly cared for, and many children died as a direct result of violating physicians' orders. Taylor's report also discussed the dysentery outbreak that spread through the orphanage. In his report, Taylor wrote that babies were dropping like flies when between 40 and 50 children died within a roughly four-month period. According to archives housed at the Benjamin Hooks Library in Memphis, gruesome abuse took place in the home. Babies were kept in sweltering conditions. Some were drugged to keep them quiet until they were sold. Other children were locked in closets, beaten, or starved while drug addicts and pedophiles were hired to watch over them. Sexual abuse was also common. According to the baby thief, the untold story of Georgia Tan, the baby seller who corrupted adoption, one adoptee said that sexual abuse at the hands of Tan was very true and presented as a favor. Another adoptee said that back then, every boy in an orphanage got molested and pointed to the male caretakers as the perpetrators. Tan was unwavering in her cruelty. Again, in Taylor's report, former home society employees revealed that if an infant was deemed too weak, it may be left in the sun for hours to die. If a child suffered from a congenital disability or was considered too ugly or too old, Tan would hire someone to, quote, get rid of the child. The bodies of many of the children were buried on the property, and about 20 others were buried in an unmarked plot of land within the Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis. By the 1930s, because of Tan Scam, Memphis had the highest infant mortality rate in the United States. That's absurd, because they're keeping track of that, and she's telling all these people that these children are dying, but yet these children are alive and well. Some of them, but some of them, obviously, she is getting rid of and letting them bake in the sun. She's a disgusting human being. But I'm glad that it seems that the census has caught up to this. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, and, and looking at this number and researching, I think officials were aware of how many children were dying on the property. You know, with a dysentery outbreak, when 50 kids die in four months, even back then, it seemed to be enough to catch somebody's eye. Now, as babies were being buried around the home society, Tan toured the country lecturing on adoption and using language that promoted eugenics. Feeling like she would never be stopped, she continued to grow more confident. She began placing ads in newspapers with titles like, They'd Like to Be Your Christmas Gift. Tan also created a baby catalog to help prospective parents choose the, quote, perfect baby for a high price. 
As her confidence peaked in the 1940s, Tan began to raffle 20 to 30 babies off in a Christmas baby giveaway. For about $25 or $529 in 2022, purchasers could buy as many raffle tickets as they wanted. People buying tickets believed that the money was going to the Home Society, but the majority was going into the pockets of Georgia Tan. And additionally, Tan made this money by only giving away a fraction of her merchandise. So she only raffled off her 20 high-priced babies. She's crazy. I think that when you are raffling off 20 children and you are selling tickets for $529 in today's money, and there's a huge number of people who want babies and buying these tickets, you sell 20 or 30 babies in this raffle, but depending on the ticket money that you're making, you're making way more than if you had to sell them individually. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. She's gross. She's terrible. This is another one where I'm like, I wish people could just see my face and my my silent commentary in my head. We might have to start doing video podcasts for episodes like this. Right. Georgia Tan's baby-selling scheme lasted over two decades. But in 1949, Tennessee elected a new governor, Gordon Browning. Because of Browning's election, Tan's henchman, E.H. Boss Crump, lost his hold on Memphis politics. On September 12, 1950, Governor Browning held a press conference and publicly outed Tan and her network of conspirators for managing to scheme more than one million, or again, about $12,295,000 today. However, Tan was never forced to face the consequence of her actions. Three days after Browning's press conference, Tan died at her home after slipping into a coma from untreated uterine cancer. The following month, Judge Camille Kelly, who assisted Tan in procuring children, quietly resigned. The remaining children were placed in safe homes between November and December of the same year. And in the final days of December 1950, the Tennessee Children's Home Society was closed permanently. In the spring of 1951, Robert Taylor, who was the investigator that we've been mentioning throughout the story, submitted his final report to Governor Browning. The Tennessee legislators sealed all adoption records to protect lawmakers and their high-power friends. Adoptees of the Home Society would need to obtain a court order to gain access to their birth records. In the 1990s, Marianne Denny Glad, a historian and co-founder of the adoption nonprofit Right to Know, came forward to help surviving adoptees. Glad's three cousins had actually disappeared in the adoption system. Glad had a lot of access to records and, more importantly, a lot of the people. At this time, the judges and lawyers were still alive, and Glad was able to compile an impressive collection of information. One adoptee, Sally Brandon, paid a $150 processing fee and was amazed at the information that she received. She learned that her birth name was actually Sue Nell. Brandon also learned that her two brothers had been sold as, quote, twins to a California couple. Additionally, Brandon discovered that her birth father was a sharecropper who was murdered when she was only 14 months old. She received photos of her birth parents, their marriage license, and health information. However, many families were never able to be reunited. But sadly, for some, the ripple effect was far worse. Adoptee Norma Sue passed away only a few years ago. In 2018, her daughters returned her ashes to the banks of the Mississippi River, where Norma was kidnapped decades prior. According to her daughters, Norma Sue was deeply traumatized by her abduction and her time spent at the Children's Home Society and became clinically depressed. 
Norma Sue was pregnant at 15, and by 22, she was divorced with five children. Damn, sis. Yeah. It's a lot of damn kids in just a short period of time. Well, and I think it just speaks to... The childhood trauma. Right. Your adult life is just in pieces because you don't have the skills that you should have learned when you were a child, you know, or that that trauma was never addressed. Yeah. Now, Norma Sue moved frequently, and she actually institutionalized her own children, only repeating the cycle. Now, Norma Sue's children were actually able to find peace when they learned from a cousin that their mother's family never stopped looking for. Where many of Georgia Tan's victims are buried is still a mystery. Archives show that Tan preferred cremation to leave less evidence. However, many adoptees and their families are able to take comfort with a small memorial built in 2015 in Memphis's Elwood Cemetery. The memorial reads in part, their final resting place is unknown, their final peace a blessing. Not a single member of Georgia Tan's black market baby ring was ever prosecuted for their crimes. Are you kidding me? Nope. All these high-powered people, physicians, all the judges, like all these people are crooks and criminals. And all these poor families and children, this one, I'm kind of speechless. There's just so many, so many things. Yeah. I mean, that's the end of the case. And I do want to make sure a lot of the research that I was able to pull was from an amazing article by Erica Celeste for Insider, uh, insider insider.com. It is in the show notes. She dives into a lot of further information as far as adoptees like connecting later in life and things like that. It's an amazing article. So if anybody wants to know more, please definitely check out the article. But I figured this would be a good time, Olivia. You know, to me, the story was crazy, but I wanted to ask you, Olivia, where did the missing children of the Tennessee's Children Home Society fall on your deadbolt test? So if I was a mother in 1920, I would be terrified. You know, hearing that the the Memphis where you live is becoming one of the highest um, infant mortality rates. You're trusting in this woman who is saying, I'll help you, you know, take care of your child. And then she tells you your kid has died. And then next thing you know, this whole huge thing comes out. Thank goodness for Robert Taylor, who investigated this. But I just I'm still just so baffled at the moment that no one was charged with anything, even though that they really had proof that all this was happening and all these high powered names were involved. It's absurd to me. And I, I'm hopeful that in this day and age that things like this aren't happening. But, you know, I've been flying a lot lately. And when you go to the bathroom, the first thing on the back of the stall door is like, stop human trafficking. If you see something, say something. And so if human trafficking is still a thing, it's essentially the same thing. I'm sure something is happening like this somewhere in the world. And it's just very heartbreaking and devastating to me. Fascinated by this. So on the fascination scale, it's a 10. On the being scared checking my locks, it's about a 2. Right. You're not worried that some little old lady is going to come into your house and be like, I'm going to put you up for adoption. Right. Right. But it's, I mean, the whole time I'm just shaking my head and listening and, you know, just hearing that she would leave the kids out to bake in the sun and, you know, just kill the ones that weren't considered pretty. And I mean, this the the fact that one human being can start something so terrible and that other people jump on board and think that this is a great idea just based off of money i can't understand it and i definitely understand where you're coming from you know the part that was really infuriating to me especially when i got to the end of researching this case is that 
just like you said, nobody was ever prosecuted, right? These children were kidnapped. The ones that lived were, you know, sent all over the country, not even all over the country, all over the world. And, you know, I've had to deal with the wreckage of this for years and years, I mean, decades after. And not only was nobody charged, but the Tennessee legislature sealed all the adoption records to prevent lawmakers and high-powered friends from getting in trouble, you know? So not only was nobody charged, but it was proactively almost covered up. Yeah. Even though the governor came out and was like, this is what's going on. And he hired Robert Taylor to do this report. For me, this is going to be a seven. And the reason that I am choosing a seven is because throughout the last 15 episodes of the show that we've done, there have been some themes that have kind of hit me a little harder than I thought. One is the fact that these are children, right? And being a father and reading that, you know, Gene Tapia, the NASCAR driver, went to World War II to come back to find out that his son had been kidnapped, right? Mm -hmm. Or the idea that my daughter could be outside playing and somebody show up in a car or a police officer could show up and be like, I need you to come with me and I not see her for 47 years is a terrifying thought to me. I think that also ties into, and we talked about this in the New Orleans Killer Cop episode, but the idea that a crime like this could be perpetrated or could assist in perpetrating and be in a position of power, a police officer, a judge. So to me, those things combined, that's where I would put it at seven. Mm -hmm. I'm very much like you where I don't think a little old lady is going to come into my house and be like, I can take you to the doctor, but your mom can't come. You know what I mean? <laughs> At a 35-year-old grown man. <laughs> right. Or like, however old you are. <laughs> yeah, I could take her. You know what I mean? But No, I totally agree. I agree. Maybe I scored mine too low. But like I said, I could, it's just, you know, the fear factor is not there. But it the intriguingness and the fascination of this case and just the how, like you're saying, like p- these people with high power can just cover up anything. Yeah, and I think it also speaks to the way that different stories hit people differently, which I think is a very interesting thing about true crime in general, where, you know, because of your life circumstances or because of things that you've gone through, certain details of a case may hit you a lot harder than maybe somebody else. You know what I mean? Like if you had a child, you know, or if this was the missing Australian shepherds of Tennessee's Children's Home Society, you may be a little bit higher. But, you know, different backgrounds, different lives, these things are going to hit differently, which I find very, very interesting. Oh, yeah, for sure. So that is where this falls on our deadbolt test. I'm giving it a strong seven. Olivia is at a two. But we want to know, where does the missing children of the Tennessee Children's Home Society fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know. Hit us up on the socials. Find us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. We're on Twitter at Check the Locks. And if you go into the show notes of the episode that you're listening to, you can click the link and join our Facebook group. I say this every week, but it is the best place on the internet. We have so much fun. We're hanging out there talking every day. People were in there today sharing, you know, their Etsy stores and stuff like that. It's really cool to see members of the group and and how they're creative and kind of see their hustles as well. So let us know. Where does this story fall on your deadbolt test? And Olivia, I don't know about you, but I think this would be a terrific time to read a five-star review. What do you think? I love reading the reviews. I guess we didn't get a voicemail this week. No, no voicemails this week. Come on, everybody. Leave us a voicemail. 
but instead we'll read a five-star review instead of listening to a voicemail and a five-star review this week. But this week's five-star review comes from Lawtree80. They said, I love this podcast. The hosts do a great job of sharing a story while adding some levity for those of us that love true crime but get easily spooked. I love the interaction and banter between Olivia and John. So thank you, Lawtree80, for leaving us a five-star review. Um, and go ahead and just reach out to us on the social media um, or send us an email and let us know who you are and we'll send you some cool swag. We got new buttons this week. We do have new buttons. We have new stickers as well. And I agree with Olivia Lautry. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for taking the time out of your day, out of your week, out of your month to leave us that five-star review. It really does mean the world. So again, make sure you're hitting us up on the socials. If it's Instagram, Twitter, if you're not a social person, Head over to checkthelockspod.com. You can send us an email. Let us know that it's your review. We'd be happy to send you some goodies. And again, guys, remember, these reviews, if you can find the time to do them for us, it does put us in other shows' recommendations. It helps us get out to a wider audience. And really, the whole goal of Check the Locks is to continue to grow this amazing community. So if you've left us a review, thank you so much. We appreciate it more than you know. If you haven't, Olivia... How can someone have their five-star review read on the show? Well, you have to hop on over to the Apple Podcast app and click on our homepage of Check the Locks Podcast. Scroll all the way to the bottom where you see the stars on my computer this week. They're pink. Last week, they were purple on my cell phone. But you have to click all of those pink stars and then write us a review. Tell us what you like. Tell us, I mean, if you don't want to tell us what you don't like, but just still leave us a five-star review. Totally kidding. But tell us what you like. We love to hear from y'all. We love to hear what you think. We really value the feedback that you guys give us. So leave us a five-star review and let us know how you're liking the podcast. That's right. Head over to Apple Podcasts. Hit those five stars. Olivia, that is it for this week's episode. This is episode 15. Can you believe we're at 15 episodes? No, I cannot. I cannot. It's crazy. It's going by so fast. Time flies when you are talking murder and abducted babies. And, you know what I mean? Yeah. It just whizzes on by. It really has. I feel like we just started like last week. It really does feel like it's been flying by. And if you've been listening to the show or have been hanging out with us in the Facebook group, your support, your listenership, it really does mean so much to us. So thank you so much. We will see you guys next week for another truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you next week.